From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council, and it's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony with you today. Tony will be back tomorrow on Thanksgiving, and with that we say a early happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and we pray that you will find and appreciate so much that we have to be grateful for here, despite the challenges in a great, great country that we are all blessed to call home. Today on the program, conservatives were disappointed by the results of the midterm elections, but amidst the disappointment of the issue of school choice may have been a winner. We're going to talk about that today on the program and what it means moving forward. Also, there were five abortion-related ballot measures on the, on the ballot in states across the country during the midterm elections. In each case, the pro-life side lost. What do we learn from this? We'll talk about that as well. Also, there were interesting patterns that emerged from the midterm elections. It turns out that your sex, your marital status, and your age have a lot to do with how you vote. What does that teach us about worldview formation? We're going to have that discussion in our worldview segment at the end of the program with David Clausen. But first, our headlines for today. As we've discussed throughout this week on the program, it is not too late for the so-called Respect for Marriage Act to be stopped in the Senate. If just three Republican senators who voted last week to advance the bill for debate decide that the bill is not a good idea, the Democrats will not have the votes to break the filibuster and have a final vote. Joining me now to discuss this issue, as well as his new report on woke warfighting, is U.S. Representative Chip Roy. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, and is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He represents the 21st District of Texas. Congressman Roy, good to have you on the program today. Great to be on, Joseph. Uh, hope you're doing well. Hope Tony's doing well, and uh, hope everybody has a blessed Thanksgiving coming up. Uh, thank you so much. Now, one of the things that we would be very thankful for is if we uh, could see this so-called Respect for Marriage Act bill stopped in the Senate, and this is clearly a priority uh, for the Democrats in the lame duck Senate. Now, you've been outspoken against this bill. What do you find most concerning? First of all, I want to start with the truth, right, the fundamental truth, uh, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, the fact that you've got a bunch of gutless politicians who run around saying, well, we don't want to talk about that because, you know, there are certain things and things are changing and, you know, the Supreme Court, we move. Hold on. Truth is truth. It doesn't matter what Congress does. It doesn't really matter what the court does. Truth remains truth. And I think it's really critically important for Republicans to understand we've been battling for truth, just as we did in Roe versus Wade. We're battling for truth now to make sure that we stand up in defense of marriage as an institution. That is the main thing that we should all be remembering, and we should have the courage to say so. The second part, though, of course, is religious liberty and being able to protect religious liberty, that if you believe that truth, if you act on that truth, if you speak out on that truth, that you will not be ostracized, that you will not have uh, litigation or uh, legal punishment, and that you will not be 
uh, you know, uh, face negative consequences because you dare speak what you believe is the truth. We had to deal with that, obviously, with the uh, the, the issue in Finland this summer, which I was proud to team up with Tony on to protect free speech about marriage there. We had a member of their own parliament being prosecuted. And that's what we want to avoid here. And this legislation that is being moved through fails on all counts. It undermines the definition of marriage. It does not protect religious liberty, no matter what some of their sponsors say. And there were 12 Republicans, 12, who voted to advance that to the floor for debate. So for your listeners out there, the cloture vote means now it proceeds to the Senate floor for debate on the bill. That means out of those 12 Republicans, you need three of them to find the courage to stand up in defense of marriage and religious liberty. Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Moore Capito, Susan Collins, Joni Ernst, Cynthia Lummis, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Dan Sullivan, Tom Tillis, Todd Young. All except for Susan Collins are from bright red states, notably Cynthia Lummis from a 70 percent red state. Uh, we need and, and by the way, Shelley Moore Capito from basically a 69, 70 percent red state. They need to be heard from. Uh, I'm sorry, they need to hear from uh, your listeners and make sure that they know uh, that their constituents don't want them to vote for this bill. And to that point, if you are in one of those states, or even if you're not, you should contact your legislators just in case. Go to frcaction.org to find out how to take action, or you can also text the word marriage to 67742. That's text the word marriage to 67742, and you will get information immediately sent to your phone telling you how you can take action. It is really, really important that people contact their senators, specifically in these 12 states right now, to put the pressure on them to do the right thing. Now, Representative Roy, there's a lot of people who look at this issue and say, well, the Supreme Court has already spoken. They already passed the Obergefell, uh, they, they made the Obergefell decision. Same-sex marriage is the law of the land. And you also have a Supreme Court that has been quite good on religious freedom. So all this fear-mongering about religious freedom isn't real. People aren't really going to lose their jobs. You don't need to be concerned about that. So let's just live and let live. What's your response to that argument? Well, first of all, um, we, the people, decide what the law of the land is. And we live under certain truths that are, of course, given to us uh, by our Creator, uh, and that those are, there are rights that are inalienable, right? Uh, our viewpoint here and how we live and structure our society, uh, marriage is truly one man and one woman. It doesn't matter that the court said, oh, sorry, yeah, uh, under the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution, uh, this means that you can have marriage that, or you must allow marriage to look like this, something that is not one man and one woman. Um, and as a result of that federal you know, Supreme Court decision, then you're unable to create and form a society around the bedrock institution of marriage. That they did that doesn't mean we should – uh, sanction it or agree with it. It doesn't mean that you as a representative of, of the people should go in and vote to codify it, expand it, extend it. And you certainly, you certainly shouldn't hang your hat on what five judges may or may not do to protect your God-given religious liberty. And that is fundamental. And that's what they are, that's what people are saying. And by the way, we say that this court is, quote, you know, decent on religious liberty. They've dropped the ball on a number of cases. We don't have enough time to go through them all right here, but go look. Go do, do a Google search. There are a number of cases where the Supreme Court has not 
done what they need to do to protect people's ability to make decisions for their life and, and, to, and to express their religious liberty the way they should. You, you never want to turn over your liberties to be in the hands of, of five out of nine unelected judges to determine what your fate is on your God-given rights. The people need to speak in defense of them, limit the power and scope of the federal government, and uh, supporting this bill uh, you know, will force every state in the union to recognize whatever uh, definition of marriage California comes up with. Right? It's an extension beyond even what we've already done. This is insane, and we should stop it. If you don't want America to be California, uh, this bill does need to be stopped. And again, to do that, go to frcaction.org or text the word marriage to 67742. Text the word marriage to 67742 to learn how you can take action immediately. Now, Representative Roy, I want to change topics with you if I can in our remaining minutes here. You've joined with Senator Marco Rubia from Florida in a report titled Woke Warfighters, How Political Ideology is Weakening America's Military. Tell us about this new report. So Senator Rubio deserves a great deal of credit. He and his team, his staff, uh, put, uh, put worked with our, my team to put together this great report. Uh, basically, a lot of things you've heard about out in the news, right? Uh, that we wanted to compile into one place so the American people could see the extent to which their military uh, that we all love and respect and that it stands on that wall in defense of our freedoms and our liberties to protect this country, that that military is being driven by a top-down, political, uh, uh, politically correct, woke uh, brass at the Department of Defense that is working in coordination with the White House to have indoctrination throughout the ranks of the military, whether it's the Air Force Academy, uh, where, where you had uh, you know, a, a statement saying, oh, well, don't don't refer to mom and dad. That might be offensive. Or an admiral telling midshipmen at the Naval Academy they need to read, quote, how to be an anti-racist um, that teaches the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, uh, which all takes large inspiration from the Marxist concepts, right, uh, of the oppressed and the divided uh, between the oppressed and the oppressor. They want to divide our country into uh, racial classes and to uh, further break our, our unity down. That's really what this is about and why we thought it was so important. Remember the old posters in World War II uh, of Uncle Sam, and it's patriotic. I want you, and we all come together in our differences, and we fight to defend this country. Meanwhile, now they're saying there's a slide at the West Point that's, uh, uh, for a class at West Point that says, uh, quote, white people and people of color live racially different structured lives and it lists three characteristics of whiteness. Describe it as a location of structural advantage and race privilege. I could go on and on. There are so many different examples. Sex reassignment procedures uh, that they will pay for and gladly give you a year off to deal with, but they won't even let you join the military if you've got, you know, braces or like certain allergies that, that are long lists uh, uh, to try to make sure you've got a healthy force. This is the absurdity of your current National Defense Department, and there are consequences. Our recruiting levels are down. The uh, morale is low in the military, uh, just at a time when we need to be heightening the strength of our military to combat the uh, rising of, of China and, and uh, foreign threats. So we thought it was important to put out there, so we, we put that report out this week. And, and that report does have a lot of really important information. You highlight the fact that uh, one of the first things Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin did when he was confirmed to his post is order a one-day stand-down to discuss 
extremism within the ranks, which is uh, the suggestion that there's extremism within the ranks of the military, and we got to do something about that. Uh, However, the military's own data says that in a force of 2.1 million people, they've only found 100 cases of prohibited extreme activity, which is, of course, 0.005% of military service members, or one out of every 21,000 service members. If that's, according to the Department of Defense, the nature of the problem or the nature of the non-problem, why do you think, Representative Roy, that this level of priority has been given to this issue? Because it is a politically driven exercise for power that the Biden administration is promoting and the brass at the Pentagon are willing to promote. And uh, the reality is, you just said it, you, you walked through the numbers, um, but, let, but let's consider further that they they created the Countering Extremism Activity Working Group and hired Bishop Garrison, uh, who's a rabid partisan who routinely attacks conservatives um, and has stated, quote, systemic racism is one of our greatest national security challenges, routinely promoting the 1619 Project. Hiring a senior advisor like that sends all the message that you know, right, and that, that, that and indicates where they want to go with it. This is all about a one-world order, right? The White House deputy press secretary said that. Like, we, we want a new liberal order. That This is not about promoting American sovereignty, American, um, you know, uh, strength. It's not about our being uh, the, the strongest country in the world and promoting that around the world, American exceptionalism. This is about... Uh, breaking down our unity, breaking it down in pursuit of this, this uh, you know, racial identity world. And again, it's Marxist. It's purposeful. The words of Marx, read them. They want to divide us. They want to divide us between oppressed and oppressor, right? They're going to move out of the race uh, as the only way to do that, which is a good reason, a good chunk of why they're promoting so much of the gender issues. Representative Roy? Uh, you know, uh, Yeah, unfortunately, we are out of time. We're up against a hard break here, but we do appreciate your work on this and as well as your time today. Thanks so much. Have a blessed Thanksgiving. Take care. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. We'll be right back. How do you take your coffee? I take mine standing with my USA made stand mug. Here at FRC, we stand. We stand for faith, family, and freedom. And when we hold our stand mug, we're reminded of what we stand for. With your very own stand mug, you can too. The stand mug holds 15 ounces of your favorite beverage, hot or cold. This sturdy, American-made cobalt blue mug is boldly etched with the word stand. Sound familiar? You've probably seen it before. It's the very same stand mug Tony Perkins and other Washington Watch guests use daily on his show. This mug stands for faith, family, and freedom. We stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you should, too, with your very own USA-made stand mug. Join us. Get your stand mug at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. And as always, keep standing. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to make sure we aren't censored completely. Now, if we get canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom by simply texting STAND to 67742. This will sign you up for our text alerts and send FRC's content straight to your phone. Stay connected and stay informed. 
Text STAND to 67742. Studies show that a majority of Americans believe they hold a biblical worldview. But in reality, most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Christians need to be grounded in the truths of God's word and be prepared to articulate them in a winsome manner, which is why Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview was created. The center serves to help Christians understand the importance of scripture in every aspect of life, why it must be authoritative, and how it can prepare believers to advance and defend faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview has experts that provide research and resources to help believers address our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at frc.org worldview. See the Worldview Fellows' most recent work by signing up for the newsletter at frc.org worldview email. Today, finding a trustworthy news source is harder than ever. That is why Family Research Council created the Washington Stand, an online daily news outlet that provides news and commentary on the most crucial issues of the day, all written from a biblical worldview. Find reliable reporting at WashingtonStand.com so that you know how to stand firm in the midst of the challenges of our day. Again, stay informed by visiting WashingtonStand.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Grateful that you are with us today. Though many of the results from the midterm elections were disappointing, there were some bright spots for conservatives. For example, states that went big on school choice policies in recent years overwhelmingly re-elected the policymakers behind those actions. Governors such as Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma, Kim Reynolds of Iowa, easily won re-election with school choice among their top issues. And in Nebraska, Jim Pillen won his gubernatorial race with school choice as a centerpiece of his campaign. Could the success of these candidates and others lead to more politicians running on this winning issue? Joining me now to discuss it is Corey DeAngelis. He's the executive director of the Educational Freedom Institute and a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. Corey, good to see you today. Hey, good to see you. Now, first, you worked this issue a lot from your broad perspective, how did the issue of school choice uh, play out in this election? Yeah, there wasn't a red wave, there wasn't a blue wave, but there was a school choice wave. The teacher unions have finally overplayed their hand and awakened the sleeping giant parents who just want more of a say in their kids' education. For far too long in K-12 education, the only special interest essentially represented the employees in the system. But now there's a new special interest. The kids have a union of their own, and they're called parents. 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children, won their races uh, during the midterms. And uh, we also targeted 69 incumbents, which is the hardest thing to do in politics, and we took out 40 of them. So the message is clear. Come out against parental rights and education and lose your job or lose your seat. Uh, look at DeSantis. He won by over 19 points in Florida against a uh, his opponent, a Democrat, Charlie Crist, who basically told Terry McAuliffe, hold my beer, because he... Uh, picked a teachers union president from Miami-Dade as his running mate as lieutenant governor. Uh, DeSantis in Miami-Dade won by 11 points, and that places a school choice 
haven when that same location went seven points to Biden back in 2020. So the voters are uh, voting at, at the ballot box for uh, pro-education freedom candidates. And you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to look at the stats from my organization. Just look no further than the liberal tears in the New Yorker magazine, where the author uh, was crying about all of our victories by saying, education freedom uh, supporters de uh, fared depressingly well in the midterms. Well, they can cry harder because that's great news for parents and families and students even if it's bad news for socialists who want to control other people's kids. Now, Corey, I, I want to underscore there the numbers that I'm hearing for the first time from you, this idea that 40, uh, you, you challenged 69 incumbents. Am I getting that number right? And yep. 40 of them won. And actually, one of the lessons from this election broadly was how well incumbents did across the country in general, um, both Republicans and Democrats. It's one of the reasons why there wasn't really a wave is because people just in many cases, in most cases, just sent back the person they had elected. So your ability to unseat a majority of those targeted on the school choice issue really is remarkable. Why do you think that issue is resonating? It's because parents have woken up and they're never going back to sleep. They saw what was happening in the classroom and parents who thought that their kids were in great schools, maybe they were A-rated by the state. Maybe the kid came home with good standardized test scores or, or they were on the honor roll or what have you. Those same parents got to see that something else is going on. There's another dimension of school quality that's arguably more important, which is whether that school's curriculum aligns with their values. And Vody Bauckham said it best that we got to stop sending our kids to Caesar and then act surprised when they come home as Romans. Well, the parents are no longer surprised. The jig is up. They figured it out. They've woken up. They're never going back to sleep. And parents are the new special interest group in town. And that's going to be good news in the future, especially because politicians don't listen to logic. And that's unfortunate. They listen to power dynamics. And these parents are have sparked a parent revolution that we've all been waiting for. And it's absolutely glorious to see how this is going to unfold for years to come. And let's talk about how this is going to unfold. A couple of years ago, West Virginia had what was then the most sweeping uh, school choice program that was passed in that state. Last year, Arizona uh, bested that one with an education savings account that gives $7,500 to every, for every child to the parents to decide how that's going to be used where do you see this issue moving in 2023? Yeah, so Arizona went all in, and parents basically broke the government website by flooding uh, the application system because families want this. I mean, you could look at polls and say, oh, yeah, you know, major vast majority of Republicans, Democrats, and independents support school choice. They all get that. But look at when choice is actually offered to parents. That, that's the true test, and Arizona is showing that this is uh, highly popular among families. Tens of thousands of families applied in just the first uh, couple, uh, couple of months of the application window, even after the school year started. Uh, so I think this will start in GOP-leaning areas. And look, Arizona did this with one-seat majorities in their House and Senate uh, controlled by the Republican Party. Well, what about Texas? Texas has much stronger majorities. They should have no problem getting it done this session. This is a top eight Texas GOP legislative priority coming up, and an 88 percent of Texas Republican primary voters support school choice, according to the Republican primary ballot in March of 2022. Abbott has come out forcefully on the issue to support the funding following the child, saying that this will be the biggest push in Texas history for school choice that we've ever seen. 
So I think the red states will follow first, but then the blue states are going to have to come along at some point. I mean, look at um, Governor uh, uh, Pritzker in Illinois and uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, who both won their elections uh, earlier this month. They uh, both changed their education platform or at least changed their stance on school choice less than two months before the election. And you might wonder, well, why did they do that? Was it really a true change of heart or was it because they were reading the tea leaves? Uh, my response to that is, well, it doesn't really matter too much about what actually happened as to why they changed their stance. Both, whatever the reason, it's good news for parents going forward that there could be more bipartisan support on this in the future, but only if the GOP leads on the issue. They have to make it politically disastrous for Democrats to oppose it, like with what happened with Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, who lost to Glenn Youngkin on the issue of education. So this could lead to more widespread bipartisan support. And look, Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate economist, said it best. He says a lot of things, or he said a lot of things in great ways. But he notably said that it's not about getting the right people into office. It's about creating a political climate of public opinion that makes it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. Corey DeAngelis. I think that's what's happening. Thanks for being with us. We're out of time. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Coming up on the other side, another issue that didn't fare quite as well, life. We'll talk about that when we come back. Most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice or have engaged with someone who doesn't share our pro-life views. As Christians, we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth in love. When we advocate for the unborn, we must do so honestly and lovingly. At Family Research Council, we recognize and respect the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. The value of human life is not conditional upon its usefulness to others or the state, or an arbitrary evaluation of a person's quality of life. Rather, the value of human life is unconditional because God, the author of life, has created all humans in His image. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Learn how to address issues like abortion, human trafficking, pornography, and more by accessing our free resources at frc.org life. Today we find that global persecution of Christians is growing and becoming more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's new book, Heroic Faith, highlights personal stories from those who endure religious persecution and takes a close look at the tragic circumstances Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is important for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who suffer deeply and dangerously and do what we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Earlier this month, abortion referenda were on the ballot in five states, California, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, and Vermont. In each of those states, voters rejected the pro-life case. 
These results serve as a reminder that the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade was not the end of an almost 50-year battle, but merely the beginning of the next chapter. What did we learn from the results of the five referenda earlier this month, and what does it mean for the cause of life moving forward? Joining me now to discuss this is Joy Stockbauer, policy analyst for the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council, and she joins me in studio. Joy, good to see you today. Good to be with you. Now, as you watch these election results come in, five states, we really went 0 for 5 on what is a critical issue. What was your reaction to that? Well, of course, it's disappointing to see that the pro-life cause didn't exactly win on the ballot this year. But I also don't think that this should come as a surprise to the pro-life movement. Um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade was a massive shakeup. It questioned the status quo. And, of course, it makes sense that voters don't know how to react to that questioning of the status quo. And it makes sense that when it came to abortion on the ballot this year, um, pro-life voters didn't always know how to vote their values. And sometimes the popular narratives pushed by the very uh, wealth, wealthy abortion industry, um, in some cases, won out. Well, and there's so many factors when it comes to an, a, a ballot measure. And people always talk about language, and sometimes that's confusing. And sometimes people talk about money. And certainly the, the pro-life position was wildly outspent by the abortion law because, of course, the abortion lobby stands to profit uh, when abortion is is legal and accessible all the way up to birth. Um, but then there's also this issue that the culture has been affected by 50 years of Roe versus Wade. People have been told for generations, my body, my choice, right? Which of these, what, which factor do you think explains what we saw on Election Day? Well, I think it's a little bit of everything. On one hand, you're completely right that um, Democrats outspent the GOP 35 to 1 when it came to these abortion measures. Um, so it makes sense that their messages were the ones that voters were hearing most frequently. They were the ones that became ingrained in the mentality and the mindset of voters in a post-Roe America. So, of course, there was a loss on the financial front. But then you're also right that when it comes to the culture of death that has been built in the United States since 1973, that's 50 years of lies being fed to women, um, 50 years of women being told that their dreams can't be accomplished if they can't have abortion, 50 years of society accepting that abortion is a solution to some of the most pressing issues that the working class and lower class Americans face. And so, you know, there's there's a culture of life that, that still stands to be built moving forward that we just didn't see this year. Because in addition to these five ballot measures earlier this summer in Kansas, there was a, a life measure that was voted on that uh, again, the abortion industry uh, won that one. So essentially, the abortion industry is 6-0 and this year. When it comes to ballot measures, how should the pro-life movement be thinking about these things? Is this something where we have to really give a, a hard second thought to whether these things should be placed on the ballot? Because even in places like Kansas and Kentucky that we would think of as like red states where the life issue should win, it hasn't happened. What's the right reaction just politically? Well, I think we need to take a, a hard and honest look at the state of the United States right now when it comes to the life issue. I think we need to be honest about the fact that many Americans still don't fully understand what an abortion is. Many Americans still don't understand what Roe v. Wade did. 
And so when they hear that a ballot measure in their state might bring Roe v. Wade back to their state, they feel comfortable with that. And so we need to get to a point where uh, we can appropriately message and reach uh, American voters and help them be persuaded that Roe v. Wade was not a good thing for the United States and that its passing um, and its overturning is, in fact, a good thing. And so to that point, there's a lot of people who um, – like abortion in America, and we might have actually understated that. Now, of course, it's not true. There, there's a spectrum here, right? Because there, most Americans do not believe abortion should be legal up to the ninth month of pregnancy, and that is, of course, the position that the abortion lobby and virtually every elected Democrat in America has been forced to take. Americans don't like that, but public opinion also says they don't want it to be illegal. So somewhere in the middle of this uh, is is where the public consciousness is. And of course, we're not just trying to play to public opinion. We're trying to do the right thing. And we know um, what scripture says and what God says about life and when that deserves to be protected. So the, the, the political realities and public opinion doesn't affect our position. It's just something that we have to navigate. How do we go about over the next 50 years and over the next five years creating a culture where ballot measures like this are going to succeed? Well, I think it comes down to not only building a culture of life, but rebuilding the culture of family. It, it matters that the policies that our pro-life legislators are pushing are policies that really benefit women, not just policies that say you have to carry this unexpected pregnancy to term and that you're going to be left alone, but policies that say we're going to come alongside you, we're going to hold your hand, we're going to make sure that you and your child are living in an America where both of you can flourish, where both of you can prosper. I think that's the key. Joy, in about 30 seconds, who do you see that's doing that well? Well, I think Marco Rubio down in Florida is doing a great job of promoting policies that will benefit families, but will also benefit unborn children. I think it's so important to look to and value these legislators who are doing a great job of celebrating unborn life and celebrating their mothers. And there are many others, and we will continue to support them. Joy, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, we're going to continue talking about kind of the, the culture of family, because another thing we learned from these elections is that people change. There are big differences in worldview and consequently in the way people vote based on their sex, based on their marital status, and also based on their age. To no one's surprise, we get more conservative as we get older. What does this tell us about worldview and how that forms in each one of us? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us. Given the all-out assault on the American male, it isn't surprising that the family structure is faltering. As a result, many men are frustrated and confused about what a real man is supposed to be. In response, Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Curitan's new book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers a battle plan for men on how to take on their God-given responsibility in a culture swiftly turning away from God's design. The authors present the Old Testament book of Joshua and his leadership as the focus of their study, asking readers to consider the five principles of biblical manhood. Man is provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. It is time for men to step into their role in the family and society and truly live out their God-given purpose. To purchase your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice. 
As Christians, we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth in love. When we advocate for the unborn, we must do so in a way that is both truthful and loving. For this purpose, FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Access our free resources at frc.org life and learn how you can speak truth both boldly and lovingly. Throughout Scripture, there is a warning to all believers that they will be persecuted. It isn't a question of if, but when. Scripture even notes that those who are persecuted are blessed because they will be rewarded in heaven. So persecution isn't something Christians should fear, but it is something they should be prepared for. So many Christians in the U.S. are far removed from the threat of persecution, but Pastor Andrew Brunson knows persecution well. In October 2016, Brunson was falsely accused of terrorism and held for two years in Turkish prisons. Following a worldwide prayer movement and significant political pressure from the U.S. government, he was released in October 2018. Since then, Andrew has devoted himself to helping equip Christians in the West to prepare for hostility. Brunson led an eight-part video series titled Prepare to Stand. In it, he shares some of the lessons he learned on staying faithful during his imprisonment. Watch this important series by going to frc.org slash prepare to stand. Again, that's frc.org slash prepare to stand. Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, studies show that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. That is why Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The experts at the center have provided free resources to help Christians live by a biblical worldview. Access these resources by going to frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Following any election, a narrative begins to form over why results broke the way they did. If anything, the 2022 midterm elections demonstrated how divided we are as a nation. But exit poll data also reveal the factor that plays a large role in predicting how one will vote, marriage. In the 2022 elections, married people, both men and women, all as well as unmarried men, favored Republican candidates during this year's midterms. Meanwhile, unmarried women significantly favored Democrats. What do these preferences by category show us about the differences between the parties in 2022? And what does it tell us about the differences between men and women? Joining me now to discuss this is David Clawson, the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you today. Hey, good to see you, and happy early Thanksgiving, Joseph. Happy early Thanksgiving to you and yours as well. Now, I want to dive into the specifics of these numbers. I teased them, but I want to get some specifics around this. 2022 general election, married men voted for Republicans. They favored Republicans by 20 points. Single men favored the GOP by seven points. So married men are much more likely to vote for Republicans. Well, turns out that married women voted for the GOP by 14 points, but unmarried women voted for Democrats by 37 points. So you have married men, single men, and married women all voted uh, who favored the Democrats, but unmarried women as a demographic, favored Democrats by 37 points. David, what's going on here? Yeah, that's, it's so interesting to kind of dig into this data, Joseph. And I, I love elections. I love campaigns. And this is something that I just love doing, especially thinking about 
kind of what are the worldview implications of, of data like this. And, you know, I'm painting, we're painting with a broad brush right here, uh, but the data shows that the older one gets, um, and the, if you are married, you are more likely to vote Republican. You are more likely to identify as conservative. Um, and this is, to me, that's, that's really, really interesting. I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Some of this, Joseph, also tracks with some of the information uh, we've looked at when it's caught, when we measure worldview. Uh, the older someone is, the more likely they think they'll have a biblical worldview. And the data shows the more the older uh, one is in America, the more likely you will have a biblical worldview. Uh, so I think there's probably a couple of reasons for this, Joseph. Uh, the fact that you're you're married and you're you're looking out for uh, a family and you're looking out for children uh, probably has a lot to do with the issues you care about, rather than if you're just autonomous and single. Uh, so a lot going on with this data that's really interesting. So for both men and women, marriage makes you more likely to prefer Republican candidates. Now, does that mean that uh, marriage forms your worldview so that those are the candidates you prefer? Or does your worldview determine whether or not you're going to get married? I think it's probably the former, Joseph. So, you know, research we've done with George Barna shows that one's worldview begins to form around 15 to 18 months of age, and it's kind of solidified by the age of 12 or 13, um, and then that's confirmed uh, as one gets older and it's more solidified. Uh, it is really, really interesting to see, though, Joseph, uh, another correlation here is the more religious one is, uh, the more likely you are to get married. Uh, so just looking at some stats from uh, Pew Research, and this is a couple years old, uh, can theologically conservative denominations uh, by far have higher higher rates of those who are in those churches who are married, and they also vote conservative. But let me just give you a couple examples. So this is, again, a couple years older, uh, but about 48% of the adult population uh, in America, uh, just regardless of religion, is married. But then when you look, you break that down by denomination, uh, evangelical Lutheran, 62% uh, of those are married. Uh, the Anglican Church, 61% are married. United Methodist Church, 61% married. Uh, Southern Baptist, uh, 60% are married. And one other one I'll give you is the Assemblies of God, uh, 57% married. You compare that to those who identify as atheist. And again, a couple of years ago in the survey, it was on only 36% of those who identified as atheists were married. Uh, so that I think that's really interesting to see the, the more religious uh, someone is, the more likely they're going to be married. Well, and that seems to make a lot of sense to me because, you know, marriage is an institution. There is a, I mean, of course, we know that originally God created that institution. And as much as the government's trying to make it its creature these days, uh, it is a pre-political institution that, that predates any kind of, of, of government structure. And that is ultimately, it's because of the way we were designed, because that's where, that's where children come from. But not everybody values marriage in that way. And so there, there, there is, again, a bit of a chicken and an egg question here about whether, um, you know, being married makes you conservative or being conservative makes you married. I'm not sure we know that exactly. But another another factor in all of this data has to do with children. And I saw data prior to the uh, midterm election that showed that married people or I'm sorry, parents preferred Republicans to Democrats by 35 points, 35-point preference for Republicans uh, to Democrats. Um, so 
this fertility problem that we are having in the West. And, and, and it, it is not primarily a political problem, but we also see is the, the result of our infertility and our low birth rate is that that is having an effect likely on how people are voting as well. And in some senses for the Republican Party, uh, they need people to have children just because they need voters, not just from the next generation, from the current generation. No, I agree with you, Joseph, and I think that's another one of the things about this data to me that is so interesting, and it's true that if you, when you look at the data, especially when you look at uh, unmarried women, uh, trended Democrat, uh, plus 30%, and I think, you know, you, the previous uh, segment you just had, you, you focused a lot on the abortion issue, and I think part of, you know, when we reflect on the midterms and we reflect on the messaging where was a lot of the messaging from the Democrat Party, the DNC, from the different candidates? Uh, they really went after the abortion issue, and they really targeted unmarried women. And they and they they told, uh, I would argue, they told lies that you know if you uh, depending on how this election goes, uh, you'll be uh, uh, be forced to do things you don't want. You're going to lose control over your body. Um, and, and so I think one part of this, you know, this is so multifaceted, but part of this, Joseph, is the messaging. And I think the DNC in one sense was effective uh, in really knowing who their audience was, which is, again, a lot of single women uh, messaging to them that a vote for Republican was dangerous for their economy, for their well-being, for their future. And I think even, again, there's worldview implications here, but moving forward into the 2024 election, I think that's something that uh, social conservatives, Republicans are going to have to think about how we message uh, to unmarried women and how uh, even, as my colleague Joy Stockbauer said, we need to make sure that these messages uh, on abortion, uh, the, the lies that the industry tells, uh, we counter those uh, with compelling stories of our own. There's no doubt that abortion was made an issue, uh, first by the Supreme Court in overturning Roe versus Wade, and then by the Democratic Party that uh, tried to campaign largely on that issue throughout the summer and into the fall. Um, and, and that could be part of the reason why you see 37 percent of unmarried women uh, who prefer Democrats and may have this a, a sympathy for the issue of abortion. And I would say one of the reasons that that matters is because it's not just because people like abortion, and I don't think most people do like abortion. There are some extremists that try to shout your abortion and celebrate it, but I think most people see it as, at best, a necessary evil. But the abortion issue is relevant here because these unmarried women and unmarried men have been told that sex makes you happy, and pregnancy is a result of sex, and they aren't prepared, in many cases, to give up sex because they think that means giving up happiness, but they don't want to have children, and therefore abortion is kind of the, the remedy and the solution to the risk of happiness, which comes through sex. And for my money, we're not going to solve the demand side of the abortion problem until we have an effective response culturally to the lie that happiness comes from sex. And so many people believe that these days. But David, I want to I want to dig into one other part of this this gap between men and women and married men and women and try to explore this a bit because we noted that unmarried women side uh, preferred Democrats by thirty seven points, but married women preferred Republican candidates by fourteen points. Does this mean that women are allowing their husbands to influence how they vote? And if so, is that just more evidence that the patriarchy is winning? 
That's such a good question. Um, and it, you know, on this point, Joseph, uh, Allie Beth Stuckey, uh, one of the, one of the friends of FRC, she spoke at our Prevo Stand Summit. Uh, she did a little reel where she was, you know, looking at the same data we're looking at. And one of the reasons she suggested, and she admitted it, it might be a little bit controversial, uh, is that married women, when it comes to politics and when it comes to who they're going to vote for, have conversations with their husband and they have conversations on, uh, politics and who to vote for. Uh, you know, how that's going to affect their family, how that's going to affect their children. And because men generally tend a little bit conservative, she offered the suggestion that perhaps one of the reasons that married women vote a little bit more Republican than their unmarried peers is the result and influence of their husbands. And I think there might be something to that. I would also add to that, uh, Joseph, uh, some of the issues, especially in the last year or so, I'm thinking of the Virginia gubernatorial race, that education has increasingly been on the ballot, and married women who are having children, uh, they're really worried uh, about what's being taught in the schools um, and all of the things that FRC has been covering. And so I think, yes, I do think married women, uh, when they go into the voting booth, they're thinking about their families, they're thinking about their children, uh, they're thinking about more than just how this candidate might affect themselves. Now, and, and we had that discussion uh, with Corey DeAngelis earlier in the program today um, about how the issue of school choice and parents' rights is, is playing itself out in the political landscape. Uh, but, David, we, we've talked about marriage. We've talked about gender. And we're going to layer one more demographic um, uh, point across this and, and deal with age. Uh, and there, there's another interesting trend, and we've seen how it, it appears that marriage kind of pushes you to the right politically speaking. Uh, but it also appears that aging does that as well. And, of course, it's also true that as young people get older, they get married, right? So it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see which of these factors explain this move right um, most uh, thoroughly. But in 2008, voters who were under 30 years old voted for Obama by 34 points. Now, in 2022, voters aged 30 to 34. So that's the same people who were under 30 when they voted for Obama in 2008. They preferred Democrats by just four points in the 2022 election. So 14 years later, the same cohort, the same group of people, they were preferring Democrats by 34 points when they were in their 20s. Now that they are in their 30s and 40s, they prefer Democrats by just four points. Is that also an indication that just Age makes you wiser, you have parents, you have children, you start to care about different things. Uh, from a worldview perspective, what's happening here? Yeah, and to add to the stats you just gave, Joseph, um, 18 to 29-year-olds in the exit polls for the, the midterms that just happened a couple of weeks ago, they favored Democrats by 28 points, yeah. uh, which, again, that's significant. But that's less uh, than went for Obama, that younger demographic, which went for Obama by 34 points. And so I do think there's something to this, Joseph, as, as folks uh, age and then they have to start paying bills. Uh, last week, I toured some homes and uh, had to think about interest rates and mortgage rates for the first time in my life. I'm 31 years old. And uh, monetary policy, uh, that, that matters. Taxes, those things start to matter. And, and I think this is, you know, this isn't a recent phenomenon. I think of those, you know, I'm a student of history, uh, Joseph, and uh, some folks in the, the 60s and 70s, the uh, very anti-Vietnam War who were radical liberals, 
uh, who in the late 70s and 80s uh, became much more conservative. So I know these are general general trends, but I do think there's something to it, Joseph, that when you take on more responsibility in your life, when you get married, uh, you begin to have to care for children, eventually you have to care for, for grandchildren. I think there is, um, we shouldn't be surprised that what we would identify as more conservative values uh, begin to mean a lot more, and that is reflected in voting pattern. And so, again, I, I'm not surprised that the older one gets, uh, and if you're married versus if you're unmarried, uh, the trends are leaning conservative um, based on the values of, of conservatism uh, that empowers responsibility, empowers families, uh, values of marriage, values of life, uh, things that begin to matter more, it seems, as you get older. I also think it's notable that the, the school system has become uh, increasingly radicalized in that same period of time. And I don't know to what extent um, that that is affecting the way young people are feeling about these issues as they come out of school. Because, again, 18 to 28 year olds are, are by far on the left uh, compared to on the right. But by a, by a shrinking percentage, and to underscore that point, Morning Consult, a polling company, they said that since 2017, the percentage of the electorate identifying as very liberal, liberal or somewhat liberal, so self-identification on the left, has dropped by seven points in the last five years. Uh, surely these things probably are connected. Uh, David, does this give you hope that even though we're becoming secular, we're uh, coming to our senses in about 30 seconds? It, it gives me some hope. Um, but again, at, at the end of the day, just my hope's not going to be in America. It's going to be in the church. It's going to be in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that even some of the trends we've seen in politics, those merit or the the life ballot issues getting voted down, that's problematic. So I think there's still a lot of work we need to do in the church to cultivate a biblical worldview, to think biblically about all things. But yes, there are some promising things in this polling, and we just need to keep praying for the country and working to instill good values uh, to all people. That's exactly right. It seems that our, uh, that our school system is doing what the left designed it to do, but as people live longer, they start to recover from that. But we'll continue to cover this. David, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Joseph. And thank you, friends, for being with us. We will see you next time here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 